It's going to be Joel chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 to 17 for a sermon I've entitled, The Valley of Decision. And here is what it says. <coughs> Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come down, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow with their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. In 1914 across Europe, they were holding flag-waving celebrations and parades as young men were enlisting in the military, ready to go off and fight in what was known as the Great War. The Austrian writer Stefan Zweig describes what he saw in Vienna and Austria as the announcement of World War I came. He wrote this, In every station, placards had been put up announcing general mobilization. The trains were filled with fresh recruits, banners were flying, music sounded, and in Vienna, I found the entire city in tumult. There were parades in the street, flags, ribbons, music burst forth everywhere. Young recruits were marching triumphant, their faces lighting up with all the cheering. Now, other than a short war between the France and Prussia, which lasted a mere nine months, Europe had been free from war for about 100 years. The only thing these eager young recruits knew about war was what they learned in school and read in textbooks, most of which was glorifying and romanticizing military conflicts. I mean, here was the opportunity for adventure and excitement and glory. It was a, a chance of a lifetime, and they did not want to miss it. Now, for the political leaders, this was the war to end all wars. After German militarism was defeated, then the world could be made safe for democracy, and after that, a new League of Nations would rule in the world. Well, neither the men who went off to war nor the politicians who sent them had any idea how long the war would last. No one thought it would drag on for four long years. And no one in his wildest dreams, or better yet, their most terrifying nightmares, believed the numbers of people who would die or the horrible ways that they would come to their end. Now, the spark that set the world aflame was the assassination of the Archduke Francis Ferdinand of Austria by a Serbian nationalist on July 28th. 1914. Serbia declared war on, or Austria declared war on Serbia as a result, but the Russians came to Serbia's defense. The Germans then in turn declared war on the Russians and France. In response, Germany declared war on Germany, or uh, Britain declared war on Germany and Austria, and later the Ottoman Empire came in, Romania, Bulgaria, Italy. The United States came in at the end of the war. Truly, it was a world war. <clears throat> now, the death tolls were staggering. With modern military technology, the number of soldiers killed in such a short time just beggared the imagination. In the first Battle of Marne, in seven days, there were 483,000 casualties. In the Battle of Somme, in three and a half months, 
1.2 million people were killed or wounded. In the Battle of the Frontier, the French lost 27,000 men in a single day. By the time the war was over, 1.4 million Frenchmen had died, another 4 million wounded. The Germans lost more than 2 million men. In total, 20 million soldiers and civilians died, and another 21 million were wounded. Most, or many, perished in mud-filled trenches, choking to death on mustard gas. Now, Joseph Stalin later said that a death of one man is a tragedy, the death of a million is the statistic. But you know, those statistics are made up of individual men and women whose families mourn their loss. Two famous poems that were written at this time convey something of the sorrow and the loss. One was by John McRae, who served in the Canadian Army at the time. It's entitled, In Flanders Field. In Flanders Field, the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing, Fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders Field. The other poem was written by Rudyard Kipling, the man who wrote The Jungle Book. Kipling had lost a son named John in the war, but the poem he wrote, entitled My Boy Jack, was actually about Jack Cornwell, a sailor who died at 16 years of age in the Battle of Jutland. It was written from a mother's perspective. It goes like this. Have you news of my boy Jack? Not this tide. When do you think he'll come back? Not with this wind blowing, and this tide. Has anyone else heard word of him? Not this tide, for what sinks will hardly swim, not with this wind blowing and this tide. Oh dear, what comfort can I find? None in this tide, nor any tide, except that he did not shame his kind, not even when the blowing wind and tide. Then hold your head up all the more, this tide and every tide, because he was the son you bore and gave to that wind and blowing tide. Now the hope in World War I was that it would be the war to end all wars, but it proved to be false because just 21 years later, the world was at war again with another loss of 50 million lives. Now the Bible does teach that someday wars will come to an end. Isaiah 2, 3 to 4 says this, The law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he, meaning the Messiah, will judge between nations, and he will render decisions for distant lands. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not raise up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. But before that day comes, there is going to be a war to end all wars. It'll take place when Jesus comes to rescue his people Israel and to bring destruction upon those nations arrayed against them. Now this is the text that speaks about that and it's the text we want to look at this morning. So why don't we pray and get into it. Our Father and God, we do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at this to understand and to apply it to our hearts because we know the victor in the end will be Jesus Christ, your son. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we can divide this text into three parts. The first you can label a call to arms, call to arms, and that's verses 9 to 11. Secondly, it speaks of a harvest of sin, and that's 12 and 13. And finally, the day of the Lord, and that's 14 to 17. 
a call to arms. Now, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a call to arms means a, a summon to engage in hostile activities. When the Russians invaded Ukraine a number of months ago, they called it a special operation. Putin evidently believed that uh, with a limited number of forces and a short military engagement, he could cause Ukraine's President Zelensky to flee his government to fall, and afterwards they'd be able to install a government more to Moscow's liking. What they didn't expect was that the Ukrainian leader, who was a former comic, would stand his ground and the citizens of Ukraine would respond to his call to arms to drive out the Russian invaders. Now Putin himself has dropped the pretense of it being a limited engagement. He's conscripted 300,000 new soldiers, some from prisons, some from Chechnya, many of them just taken off the street. Can you imagine that? You're going to work in the morning, you're coming home in the afternoon, somebody arrives at your door and says, get ready, pack your stuff, you're leaving now, and 10 days later you're in the Ukrainian front. And you may not be coming back except for in a body bag. War is hell. Well, here the summons comes not merely from political leaders, but ultimately from God himself. Look again what it says, starting in verse 9. It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. What he's saying is institute a draft, muster the troops, have the celebrities sell war bonds so we can ramp up military production. The centuries-long Jew hatred will reach its apex when Israel's enemies unite under the Antichrist to bring about the final solution and wipe her off the face of the map. Now this war to end all wars is spoken of in a number of places in the Old Testament and the New. Ezekiel 38-39 to speak of an army that's coming from the north, led by one called Gog from the land of Magog. I argued earlier that Gog is just another reference to the Antichrist. Zechariah in chapter 12 and chapter 14 prophesies about the same battle. And in Zephaniah 3.8, God encourages his people saying, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And ultimately, it's God who's drawing these armies, but he works through humans and even through demonic forces. Listen to what it says in Revelation 16.12-16. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they're spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together in a place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. We know it as Armageddon. So even though these leaders of these nations are under demonic deception and their soldiers are driven by maniacal hatred towards the Jews, it's still God working behind the scenes to bring about his will and his plan. But I mean, how can tiny Israel defend itself against the combined forces of these nations arrayed against them. They can't. And that's why, after calling out, hasten and come all the surrounding nations and gather yourself, the prophet cries out, bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Now, who are these mighty ones? And where is God bringing them down from? Well, there's a couple of passages that give indication. 
and give an answer. The first one's in Zechariah 14, 3 to 5. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, those surrounding Israel, as when he fights on the day of battle. And that day, the Lord, or his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west, a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north, the other half will move to the south. You will flee by the, mount, uh, the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled in the earthquake, in the days of Uzziah the king, then the Lord my God will come with all of his holy ones. Writing to encourage the Corinthians in Thessalonica who were being persecuted, Paul reminded them that God was going to deal with their persecutor someday. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, listen to this, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory, of his power, when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you was believed. Or this one in Revelation 19. 11 to 16, it says, And I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on them which no one knows except for himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, clean, will follow him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty and his robe and on his thigh he has name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the mighty ones coming down with Jesus when he returns to this earth to defeat Israel's enemies are both the angels and the resurrected saints, us. It says in Psalm 149, 5-9, it says, Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their bed. Let the high praise of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the king, uh, peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. Five to nine. And why is God drawing these nations to the valley of decision? It's because the harvest of sin has become ripe. Look what it says in verse 12. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit and judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now the imagery here is that uh, one that's familiar to the people of Joel's day. I, I read just recently, archaeologists uncovered a 2,600-year-old wine press in Tel el uh, Berak site. Now, it consists of a, of a large trough, stone trough. It looked like it was about four feet by about eight feet. And it had a one-foot enclosure around it. And then on the bottom side, a little bit farther down the hill, there was a huge vat and a hole that came from the first to the second. So what people would do is you would go and put all the grapes in the first part and you'd have you and your family and your kids stomp on it and, you know, get grape juice all over, clean out the toe jam, all that kind of stuff. And you, then you let it flow down into the second one 
and that's where you get the wine. You remember that passage I just read from Revelation 19 about Jesus' return? It says how his garments were stained with blood. That's not his blood. It's the blood of his enemies that he's going to destroy. Isaiah in his prophecy about this warrior king asked this question. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one is majestic in his apparel, marching in greatness and strength. It is I, the Messiah speaking, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like one who treads a wine press? And he answers, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood I sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. Isaiah 63, 1-4. The Apostle John, the book of Revelation, chapter 14, said this, Then I saw and behold a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man who had a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud and said, Put forth your sickle and reap for the hour has come to reap because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. This angel uh, then another angel, the one with the power over the fires, came from the altar and he put uh, forth a call in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put your sickle forth and gather the clusters, for the wine are the vine of the earth, because its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the wine of the, or vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Now the reason I think there's two harvests here is because the first one represents the tribulation saints whose faith and Christ-like character has ripened to its fullness and so now they're taken. But the second one, is of the grapes of wrath because the sins of mankind has ripened and the time has come for God to pour out his wrath upon them. You know, the Bible teaches that both individuals and nations can store up wrath. I mean, people think that because God doesn't immediately strike him down when they break his laws that he's either indifferent or he doesn't exist or he maybe even approves of what they're doing. But Paul debunks that idea in Romans chapter 2, 4 to 6, when he asks this question. He says, Do you show contempt for the riches and the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're actually stirring up wrath against yourself in God's day of wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what he's done. Our country is storing up massive amounts of wrath. You know, our debt is $31 trillion. Or $31 trillion. I don't know how much that would be if you put them in $1 bills, but I bet you could go to just about the sun and back. Your portion of it is well over $100,000. But you know what? Our debts, our financial debts, are nothing compared to the sin debts that we have. We have politicians stumping for mutilating little kids and cutting off their genitals and pumping them through uh, with chemicals and hormones. We've got a couple of things that just passed on initiatives. One of them in Montana 
which would have required that if a baby were aborted and the baby were born alive, you had to extend care to it and try to save its life. No, 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 no. Just let it die. There's one before California legislature. I don't know if they've, they've passed it yet or not. It'll allow what's called postnatal abortions. That's killing babies after they're born. We're worshiping Moloch, just like they did in the Old Testament. That, along with all the perversion, with all the indifference, with all the cruelty, Jesus said lawlessness would increase in the end. Aren't we seeing lawlessness in our culture? Is God still holy? Is God still just? But you know, it's not just nations as a whole, it's individuals. If you're here today and you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and trusted in his death on the cross as the payment for sins, you're storing up wrath. And don't assume that you can just do it later. I mean, if you don't feel like doing it now, why would you necessarily feel like it later? Do you think that more sins over more time is going to make it easier to get out of those sins and to repent? And how do you even know you have a later? God may decide he's waited long enough for you to repent and say tonight, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you and now who will have what you've prepared? The Bible says, today, if you hear your vo his voice, do not harden your heart. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Before that day comes, the day of the Lord. And that's our third point. Look what it says in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, sometimes you'll hear evangelists talk about the valley of decision and say, that's the place where you have to decide on Christ. You're in the valley of decision. But that's not the context here. It's not us deciding on Christ. It's Christ deciding on these people. And as a result of the fact that they're unrepentant and attacking his people, multitudes upon multitudes are going to perish. Look what it says in verse 15. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. Now, Jesus spoke about these cosmological phenomena when he said this in Luke 21, 25 to 27. He said, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves. By the way, did you see in Florida? I got a sister who lives in Florida. You got a sister who lives in Florida. Everybody's got a sister who lives in Florida. But they have, they have all kinds of houses that are on the ocean shore that are just being wiped away now. It says, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the, of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. You know, the 60s band Creedence Clearwater Revival wrote a song that had these words in it. I see a bad moon horizon. I see trouble on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today. Don't go out tonight. Well, it's bound to take your life. There is a bad moon on the rise. I hear a hurricane's a-blowing. I know the end is coming soon. I feel rivers overflowing. I hear the voice of rage and ruin. Don't go around tonight. Well, it's bound to take your life. There's a bad moon on the rise. Hope you got your things together. Hope you're quite prepared to die. Looks like we're in for nasty weather. One eye is taken for an eye. Well, don't go around tonight. It's bound to take your life. There's a bad moon on the rise. What I'm telling you is if you are not trusting Christ for your salvation today, 
you're not prepared to die. To avoid God's wrath, you have to flee to Jesus Christ as your only hope, and he is the only hope. Look what it says, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Now, not only is a stronghold for the sons of Israel, but for all who embrace Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Only a minority of Jews have done that today, but when Israel's darkest hour comes, then God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, will be the one who will shine into their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And then it says in verse 17, it says, then you, then you will know that I, by the way, who is the I speaking here? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. The I is Jesus. Dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and the strangers will no longer pass through it. So the war, to end all wars, will also bring an end to Israel's rebellion against her rightful Lord and King. And then all the nations will finally be what God wants them to be, those who submit to his Son, and Israel will be what he intended it to be, a light to the nations. To quote again from Isaiah chapter 2, now will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come to it and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we may, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again. Well, they learn war. And that'll be true in high tide and low tide, however the winds may blow. You know, the reason the nations are at war with each other is because the nations are at war with God. If you're not a Christian today, I'm asking you to call off the rebellion, submit your life to Christ, and find not only peace with God, but the joy that he provides in eternal life. This might be your last opportunity. You have no promises for tomorrow. Let's pray. Our Father and God, there's probably not a person here who hasn't heard this before, that there's a judgment coming, that there's a Savior to deliver us from the wrath. It's the same Savior who is coming as judge. Everybody has to deal with Jesus. We either deal with him now and come to grips with our sins, and receive forgiveness, or we'll deal with him then and pay for our sins. And that payment's going to go for a long time. So, Father and God, I pray that you'd open up hearts and minds for those who hear even now, and for those who are going to hear over the internet and the radio broadcast. Give grace and mercy. Show yourself to be a mighty Savior. And we look forward to these days, as dreadful as they are, Lord, because on the other side, Jesus is going to reign forever. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.